0: Good morning, Merry Christmas again, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, our last time in this majestic introduction to the Gospel of John, you can find it on page 886 in the Pew Bible. Christmas, and it's snowing, I don't think I've ever got to preach in the snow before. You're wondering, is he going to squash all our Christmas fun again? Is he going to tell us why we shouldn't celebrate Christmas? No! No! My desire is not to be Scrooge and Grinch all rolled into one. My desire is not to minimize your joy, but to maximize it. Uh, My desire is to draw your attention to the call and the command to celebrate Christ not one day a year, but every single day of the year. Because he's that big and he's that good. Jesus is not just the reason for this season, uh, but for every moment of every season. We don't want less focus on Christ. We want more focus on Christ. And that's why we're ever so slowly launching into a long series on the gospel of John. Because John writes as a witness to us of the infinite glory of Christ. We've been looking at that glory now for the last four weeks. And it begins with a big bang. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John begins by definitively declaring the deity of Christ. Jesus was God. We were out talking with people last weekend about Jesus, inviting them to church. Uh, There was one drunk man who was very nice, until for some reason I claimed that Jesus was God, and that just set him off. And he was no longer nice after that. He said he was going to get me fired. So if a drunk guy comes and tries to get me fired, don't, don't listen to him. But this is simply what John clearly claims. You cannot get any bigger or more glorious than God. And John says that Jesus is God. But it gets even Better. I'm going to read the whole passage in a moment, but first I want to just read verse one straight into verse fourteen. Read one and verse fourteen together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't let the familiarity of those verses blind you to the enormity of those verses, right? This is it. This is everything. This is the climax of this brilliant prologue. One commentator even writes, it was to make this great statement that the whole gospel of John was written. Uh, The central and foundational miracle of the Christian faith is the incarnation. Quite simply, God has become man. That's what John wants to communicate. And that's what Christmas is supposed to be about. As I've argued before, maybe our need to add all kinds of trappings and traditions is due in part to the fact that we do not yet truly appreciate this foundational, world-shaking, reality-altering, life-giving truth. God has become man. This is the most important event in the whole of history. If you think about it, we are each of us largely shaped by a handful of big events that have happened to us? What would those big, life-shaping, life-changing events be for you? What would you say are the biggest events of your life that have had the most profound impact on your life? There are obviously both positive and negative big events that have this profound shaping influence. Weddings and divorces, children, death, major injuries, illnesses, major job losses, major job gains. What are those big shaping events for you in your personal history? I want to argue that the shaping event of the whole of history is John chapter 1 Verse 14. And thus, it should also be the shaping event of your personal history. God has become man. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 14, but we'll touch on other verses as well. My goal is to be simple this Christmas Sunday, not always my strength. Uh, When I first read through a passage, I begin jotting down a list of key words or ideas from the text that I want to cover and explain. So on Tuesday, I wrote down Word, flesh, dwelt, glory, grace, truth, fullness, law, Jesus Christ, Father made known. Uh, That would be an 11-point sermon. Uh, We're we're not going to do that. What we've been seeing is that John is taking this opening section to introduce to us the key themes that he's going to unpack through the rest of the book. And he again, in these important verses, uses some important words for the first time. We get the first glory, the first grace. We've been talking about the word, but for the first time in verse 17, we get the first Jesus Christ, that's when he's first named, and we get the first son and the first father. There's just so much to do here. What do we do? I'm going to try to keep it nice and simple. We have just two basic points that I want to make a case for you from this text. Uh, First, quite simply, God became man. We want to answer the question, why? Quite simply, God became man to save man. And then point number two, I want to move on from that and show us uh, why he wants to save man. And it's in large part, God became man to be with man. Those are both coming from verse 14. And we'll flesh those out as we go. But within point number one, I want us to then see that God became man to save man by grace, because that word's repeated four times in this text. And then within point number two, I want us to see that God became man to be with man for the greatest possible display of his own glory as we get the first use of that important word as well. My title not that compact or creative, but hopefully clear. This is the most important thing that has ever happened. God has become man. Do we live our lives as if this most important thing has happened? God has become man. You've probably heard the saying, the best of men are men at best. Yes, true. Except for this man. Except for this man. For this man is God. And for you to live, you must know this man because he is the only way that you can be saved. Do you know this Jesus? Can you honestly say that he is the shaping influence and that this is the shaping event in your life? Let's read this text. John chapter 1. We're going to read the whole of verses 1 through 18. This will be the fifth and final time we will read this passage. But we'll be focusing on the end there, verses 14 through 18. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. In the beginning was the word. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's begin this time first with with a word of prayer. Bow with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known uh, to us through the sending of your Son, uh, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made yourself known uh, to us uh, through the recording of these words about your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, these words that are living and active, these words that are able to make us wise for salvation, these words that mediate your glory and and your grace and your presence to us. So we ask now that you would work on our behalf uh, through your word. Father, it is your spirit that mediates Christ unto us. Um, So we ask that your spirit would help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that you would help me to be clear. I pray that you would help me to preach Christ and to preach him crucified, to preach him glorified and that you would use your word um, to compel us to love him uh, more and more. Father, use your word for anyone who is in this room or anyone who is watching online who does not yet know this Christ uh, to convict them of their sin and to give them a new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, please, please work and please help us. We pray that you would be glorified and we pray that we would be edified uh, by the preaching of your word. And we ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over 900 years ago, uh, the great Anselm of Canterbury penned one of the great works in all of Christian history called Cur Deus Homo, which most literally translates in the Latin as Why God-Man, but it's often translated as Why God Became Man. That's the question before us. This morning, that, That's the question of Christmas. Everyone knows the basic story of Christmas, though, as I've argued, many of those basics are basically wrong. They're not rushing in at the last moment. There's no innkeeper. There's probably no inn. I've done that before, so I won't bore you with that again. But the big idea can't be missed. Christmas is supposed to be about the coming of Christ. The next logical question, then, is, well, why did Christ come? And you would be amazed at how much confusion there is and how many different answers people give to this pretty simple question. Especially considering how clear the scriptures are. Jesus says himself in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a very clear and specific purpose statement. Jesus tells us why he came. But I want to stick to John. I want to stick to the author, John, the apostle. Flip for a moment as we begin to 1 John. Flip over to the first letter that this same John pins, page 1021 in the Pew Bible. Flip to 1 John. We'll be starting in chapter 3. I I love how clearly and purposefully John writes. I want to speak and write like that. I said last week that he loves these special clauses, these, these purpose statements. So with John, you get all of these that's and all of these so that's. And there's a lot of them in 1 John specifically connected to why Christ came. So it's Christmas. Jesus has come. Why has he come? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 5. Pick up first in 1 John 3, verse 5. Talking about Jesus. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Look down at the middle of verse 8 of chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of God. Of the devil, Look now at chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's get down to verse 14. Chapter 4 still, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Finally, look at chapter 5, verse 20. This one's a little less clear, but I think it counts. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. Why? He has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. All right, so, so why did Christ come? Why was he sent? Why did he appear? Well, working backwards through those purpose statements, in summary, it was that uh, we might have understanding and know and be in him who is the Savior of the world, who is the propitiation for our sins, that we might live through him, that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might take away sin. Or even more, in summary, he came to save us from sin and the devil that we might know him and be with him. He came to save us. That's simple. That's all just summarizing from First John. And so the next question then is, why did he have to become man to save us? Why did he have to do this specific thing and come in this specific way to save us? Because that's our first point. Back to John chapter 1, verse 14, 886 John 1, verse 14. I've worded our point for this way for a reason, but I want you to notice in the text that this isn't how the text words the point. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh. And this, is, this is the climax of the prologue. This is the whole point of the book. This is the most important thing that has ever happened. Verse 1 has introduced us to the Word who was with God and who was God. Um, now, I was never very good at math, but do you remember all those properties of math that you had to learn? Associative and distributive and all of these things. Joy, maybe you know all these right now. I had to look them up to remind myself which one I was trying to think of. The transitive property. I was thinking of the transitive property. The transitive property says, well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Right? This makes sense right? because they're all the same thing. Remember that one? Well, if verse 1, the Word was God, being carefully, don't press this too hard. If verse 1, the Word was God, we can then substitute God for Word and verse 14, and we get, and God became flesh. And rightly understood, of course, we have to be careful here. Errors abound when it comes to understanding the nature of the God of the Bible. As we saw a few weeks ago, the foundational truth of the Christian faith is the identity of our God, that he is triune. He is three in one. Scripture demands this. It's required by verse one, where we see that the word is somehow both with God and was himself God, because as it is progressively revealed to us in the scriptures, there is only one God, but he exists eternally in three words. Persons, And we see it even in our verse, verse 14, as we get another first in this book, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then when we get to verse 32, in a couple of weeks, we will be introduced to the Spirit. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, all within this first chapter. And so when we say that God became man, we mean specifically God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became Man, But still, look at the text, it doesn't say man. John could have said the word man, anthropos. He doesn't use that. He could have said the word uh, became a body, soma. He doesn't say that either. He chose an almost crude word, almost a, a dirty word to many of the Greeks at the time. Whereas in the Greek, he chooses this word sarx, which means flesh. And we need to be careful here because John uses this word differently than Paul uses this word when Paul uses the word flesh he generally means sin right when Paul is talking about the flesh he's talking about the sinful flesh in contrast with the spirit which is pure pure and holy so sinfulness is what Paul means with the word flesh that's not how John uses the word he doesn't use flesh to primarily mean sinfulness but to mean weakness or finiteness or quite simply humanness and apparently that is a word all right. If the fundamental distinction in all of reality is the creator-creature distinction, remember verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There is God, and there is everything else. There is the creator, and everything else is the creation. Verse 14 is telling us that in some mysterious and miraculous way that the creator has entered into his creation. That the creator, in some way, being careful, has become a creature. The author himself has written himself into the story, God has become man. And this would have been anathema to both Greeks and Jews at the time. We saw in our first sermon five weeks ago how the word, the logos, in Greek thought, was this impersonal principle of reason behind creation. It's what undergirds and binds everything together. Well, John is correcting that concept. He's saying this, this logos is not a principle, but it's a person. It is God himself, the Son, who is both the creator and the sustainer of all of reality. But for the Greeks, the idea that this logos, the spiritual, would become physical, This would have been absurd to them, because generally in their mind, spiritual was good, physical was bad. Why would the spiritual ever become physical? And for the Jews, as we'll see later in the book, the idea that this man in the flesh could be the one God was blasphemous. We just breeze over verse 14, but imagine reading it for the first time. Imagine reading it 1,900 years ago as a Jew or as a Greek. This is an explosive, offensive claim. There has been nothing else like this. God has become man. That's what we mean by the term incarnation. Peter has said that one of his life goals is to only eat meat. Right? I like that. I respect that. I love chili, but I prefer chili con carne. Right? Chili with meat. You hear the same word in there, incarnation, carne. And I, I don't mean this, I'm trying not to be disrespectful, I don't think I am here, but maybe this will help us hear it as some of them would have initially heard it. Jesus, in a way, is God with meat. Right? He, he is God in flesh. Why? Why did Christ come in this way? Why did the word become flesh? And it's quite simple, really. Right? It's, it's because you our flesh, and I am flesh. In many churches, the reading of Scripture is followed by a quotation of, of Isaiah 40, verse 8. Right? You know, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we think of grass browning. We think of Jim and Juliet's beautiful, colorful, vibrant garden over here dying in the winter. It's all brown and sad. But Isaiah's not talking about grass and flowers in that verse. Two verses before that verse, he says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. verse 7 says, Surely the people are grass. The grass and the flowers are symbols of people and flesh. What that verse really means is, The flesh withers, the people fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And it is this, it is this fading flesh, that the word of God takes on? Why? Again, that's the answer. What we're looking for. Flip to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, which you can find on page 1002. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. This is one of the best Christmas texts that doesn't get any love. Page 1002. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Paul, or someone, writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since we are flesh, he took on flesh. He became what we are to save us from what we are. As the church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, wrote 1,600 years ago in defense of the necessity of the humanity of Jesus, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And don't miss that in verse 14 there of of Hebrews 2, it says that he partook of the same things he took on flesh that through death he might do what followed. That's that's huge. He took on flesh to die. Why? Because God, by definition, cannot die. He's he's God. He cannot die. And that fact raises a huge problem for us. I said it last week. What is our problem? We've got all kinds of problems right now. 2020 has been full of problems. I loved Pastor Mike's encouragement a little while ago. Hey, what if 2021 is worse? It, it, It could be worse. We don't know. But there's been all kinds of problems, and we look at all of them. What are it's this and it's that, and but what's the big, one big problem? Well, according to Scripture, God is our one big problem. I argue that verse 10 in John chapter 1 reveals to us the true nature of our world and the true nature of our problem. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Right? The one whom knowing, as we'll see in chapter 17, verse 3, is life. We don't know the one who knowing is life. But we have a God problem. We did not know or receive our own creator, the one who is life and light, the one who is perfect goodness and love, and who has made us for him to know and love him, to be known and loved by him. And that's what we're all looking for. We are all of us desperate to be known and loved. That's why we behave the way that we do on social media. That's why the isolation and loneliness of quarantine have been so hard. We were created to be known and loved, created for relationship, created for relationship with God himself, who is love and life. And this God, who is both kind and wise, warned us from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the day you disobey me. You shall surely die. He's not being vindictive. He's not being mean. He's not some power-hungry tyrant out to get us and spoil our fun. No, he, he's God, and he's good, and he's wise. And so he knows, I made you for me. I am goodness. I am beauty. I am love. I am joy. You will therefore then find those things only in me. And I am life. You will therefore then find life only in me. Me, don't be foolish then. Don't rebel against and reject that which is goodness and beauty and love and joy and life. Misery and death can only be the logical result of rejecting those things. Isn't that so kind of God? We get God's law so wrong. God doesn't give us his law to spoil our fun. He gives us his law for our good. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with us and our inability to keep the law. And so God gives us this law for our good because he knows that he is eternal and ultimate good and that we will then find those things only in him. He wants us to find life and joy in him. And so he warns us from the beginning don't turn away. Don't look anywhere else. You will find only death apart from me. But we know the story. We know in the very next chapter, Genesis 3, that's exactly what our first parents chose. And that's exactly what each of us have chosen time and time again as well. Romans five twelve. just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is death. Isn't that what we've seen in this year that has been so tragically marked by death? There is death ultimately because there is sin. Let me be clear. We're not saying that an individual's death is necessarily a punishment for some individual sin. Scripture goes to great lengths to make it clear that that is not the case. Let's not be Job's friends here. That's not how it works. But I am saying that all death ultimately is a result of our sin that broke the world. We were made through him, yet we did not know him because we chose to reject him. We sinned against him, and death is the result. Death is the logical consequence of rejecting the God of life, but it is also the active punishment of the God of perfect holiness who has been disgraced and dishonored by our sin against him. We have a God problem, and as a result, we have a death problem. And that's why God became man. That's why the word became flesh. And this is, this is amazing. right? We have done all of this, all of this sin, rejection, and rebellion, and God does First John, John 1, 14. He comes. Because we were flesh and owed death for our sin, God who cannot lie and cannot die, took on flesh, as Hebrews 2, 14 says, so that he might die. That's the gospel. That is the why behind verse 14. That is why the word took on flesh. He took on flesh to die. He took on flesh so that he could take our place. As John the witness will announce in verse 39, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin that deserves death by taking on the sin that deserves death and dying for it so that we might live. God became man to save and this is, this is why the exclusivity of Christ is so important and can never be sacrificed because this is the only way that we could be saved. The beauty and brilliance of the gospel is that God has done the one thing that could solve our one problem. And this is why theology is so important. The whole opening uh, prologue is to introduce us to the Jesus Christ, first named in verse 17. And now we have seen in verse 1 that this Jesus Christ is both truly God, verse 1, and verse 14, truly man. And he had to be both. Look there inside uh, your bulletin there. Um, I haven't even opened mine up. Look there inside your bulletin. You've got your sermon notes page, which you're all writing on, right? You're all taking your notes on the, on the sermon. Look on the other side of the page there. I gave you uh, half of a chapter. as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Again, we call it the 1689 for short. Maybe 2021 will be the year of 1689. I think that would be fun. Uh, but this is a wonderful summary of the doctrine of Christ. Take this home with you and meditate on it for Christmas. This is the Christ you so claim to love and adore. How well do you know this Christ? Again, this is is only half the chapter. We're just trying to fit it all on one page. There's a whole other page in this one chapter just on uh, Jesus. Look at paragraph one. We're not going to go through all of this. Don't worry. Don't panic. But in paragraph one, we learn that the Son, Jesus, is our mediator. That's the title of the chapter, Christ. The mediator you can remember this creator creature distinction we are not God how arrogant would we have to be to assume that we the creature in our own power could relate to him, our creator especially in our sin so we need a mediator we need someone to go between God and man that's Jesus as God and man mediating between the two parties but I want to look at you with you at paragraph two. I'm going to read paragraph two. We won't really get to three and four and five, but look at paragraph two. This is so wonderful and rich and compact. So I'm just going to read it for you because it would take me months to preach on what they do in one paragraph here. Look at paragraph two. The son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. That's Christmas. God has become man. The word Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is truly God and truly man. Like the great mystery of our God who is three in one, there too is mystery here uh, in that this one man, Jesus, the one person, Jesus, is two in one. Two natures, deity and humanity, whole and perfect natures joined together, yet distinct. And your Christmas present for me today is a reasonably length sermon. You're welcome. And it's my resisting the desire to jump into all the ways that people have gotten the identity of Christ wrong. The first couple hundred years of church history were largely taken up with sorting out um, this question because they understood that Christ is everything. Therefore, there's nothing more important than getting Christ right. And so they went to great lengths and great efforts to get this right in the face of great error. Uh, We could go through, we could talk about Ebionism, Docetism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and on and on and on we could go. Each one in some way denying either the true deity of Christ, the true humanity of Christ, or in some way the relationship between the deity and the humanity. There's four or five hundred years of of church history and Christology in one paragraph. We tend to get bored and roll our eyes at all this. I have a people used to understand that theology was really really important because theology is simply what we believe about god it's our thoughts and our understanding of the god who is life and light so there's nothing more important than the identity of this god and the identity of our savior and so the main thing you need to get without getting into all the minutiae is that he was truly god and truly man he is truly god And truly man, two natures in this one Christ. And thus he is fit and qualified to be our mediator, representing both parties and fit and qualified to be a savior. If Jesus is not both. Then we are damned and doomed. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses can save no one because he is not God. In this evangelistic book, this gospel of John that is written entirely for the purpose of convincing and compelling you to believe in this Christ so that you may have life in his name, John is making it very clear from the beginning who this Jesus is. Truly God and truly man. That's the point of the prologue. He had to be man to represent us, to stand in our place. Man sinned, man owed death for that sin. Only man can pay that debt. Jesus had to be truly man. But man sinned against an infinitely large God. I've explained before that the degree, the amount of debt that you owe or the punishment for a crime is dependent in part on who you commit that crime against. Right? You come in and punch me. Uh, cops are kind of like, eh, no big deal. We don't really don't do that anymore. Right? You're not going to get in trouble. You then turn around and punch that police officer, you're going to jail, right? You, you then go after Governor Cuomo or the president and you attack one of them. Well, you're going to get locked up for life, right? You, I'm not important. These individuals are increasingly important. So your crime against them is going to merit for you an increasingly large sentence. We have all of us committed crime, sin, rejection against the infinitely large. And infinitely glorious and infinitely valuable God. Therefore, we owe an infinitely large debt. Jesus had to be truly God to be able to pay that infinitely large debt that you owe. It is only in his divinity, his perfection, his holiness, his infinity that the redeeming death of Jesus Christ could have infinite value and satisfy the demands of an infinite God who has been offended by all of us. He had to be God to save us from such a dire situation. So it is only in his humanity that he can identify with us as men and stand in our place as our redeemer. He had to be man to be our substitute. It's only in his divinity that he can pay the infinite debt that we owe for our sin. Without either, we are lost. This is the incarnation. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, God has become man to save and that's, that's the word. Notice the progression of names. Verse 1, he's the word. In our verse, he takes on flesh. He's first called the Son. And I want you to notice what's connected to him. He is full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And look at verse 17. For the first time, John's been building towards this. It's such brilliant writing. He doesn't tell us who he's talking about, who he's talking about, until he gets to Verse 17. Jesus Christ, he's named for the first time, and grace and truth come through him. Four graces in this short little paragraph. And what's interesting, I haven't found anyone who's explained this well, and I don't understand it, I don't know. Those are the only four uses of the word grace in this whole book. So figure that out for me, and come give me some theory of why that is. But the whole book is clearly about grace, as John is laying out from the beginning. This word that we looked at in great detail in the book of Philippians, charis, which refers both to God's disposition and action toward his people. We tend to define grace uh, simply as unmerited favor. But as I've said, not only is grace God's unmerited favor and that we do not earn or deserve his goodness toward us, it is his demerited favor. And that we have actually deserved and earned the exact opposite. We have earned and deserved death as we have just seen, but in Christ, God is giving us life. In verse 16, it is from Christ's fullness that we receive grace. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Jesus, the whole fullness, same word, of deity dwells bodily. Again, we think of, if you want metaphors and symbols, we think of God as a fountain. It is, it is the very nature of a fountain to, to pour forth and to overflow. It is the very nature of God and Jesus as the Son of God to, to for, pour forth and to overflow this grace. That's probably what the notoriously difficult to translate end of verse 16 means. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, or grace after grace, or grace and then more grace, abounding grace. Seems to be the point. God became man to save man, and he saved man by grace. For By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. My grace is gift, not a result of works, not your own doing, God's doing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is just wonderfully good news for people like us. I don't know about you, but I need to hear this all the time because I am so prone to seek to prove myself and to seek to justify myself. We are so prone to strive to demonstrate our own goodness and our worth and sometimes our, our feelings about ourselves. Uh, Henry rightly pointed out in Sunday school that we could all use a little bit less self-esteem, actually. That could all be knocked down uh, a little bit. Uh, but we're also tendin- so trying to, to work so hard to l- look I have value. Look, I matter. Look, I am beautiful. Look, I am good in an attempt to justify ourselves. Right? That's just wired within us. And so what we see here is this wonderful truth that is so contrary to everything that the whole world and every other religion is telling you that you have to do. It is only the gospel that tells you what God has done It is only the gospel that tells you your definition and your identity and your worth is found not in yourself, not internally, but externally in him. It is only the gospel that makes our salvation and our standing based not upon us and our work, but on Christ and his grace. And I've been so helped uh, and understanding by Sinclair Ferguson in this area. Just read everything uh, he writes, except on baptism. Read everything else. Um, But Ferguson does a really good job to point out that that grace is not a thing. He really hammers this drum. Grace is not a res, a race. He says grace is not a race, R-E-S, as confusing in the Greek. Grace is not a thing. There is no thing or, or substance that is grace. And so he points out very helpfully that grace ultimately... Is a person. Christ Christ Himself is grace. Because Christ is God's favor toward us. In giving us His Son, God is doing the best thing imaginable. He is giving us His very self. And that's the whole point of all this. That's what God is doing. And that's what God has been doing from the very beginning. And that's the end, the purpose, the goal toward which God has always been driving. Point number two, I'll be much shorter. Point number two, God became man to be with man. And that point is coming from one word there in verse 14. Look at it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is another word that only John uses. Nobody else uses this word. Eskenos is the Greek word for tent. This is the verb of that word, skinao, which literally means to, to pitch. And this word is loaded with Old Testament baggage, beautiful Old Testament baggage. Maybe John's last use of the word can help to drive this home. We've been focused on the beginning, what we're getting toward the end in our Thursday night Bible study of Revelation. All that wrath and that judgment we've been struggling with hopefully will pay off and be worth it because the end is so good and glorious. What's the end? What's the blessing? What's the thing that we were made for that we are all waiting for? Well, Revelation chapter 21. You can turn there if you want, just one verse, page 1041. It's just the end of the book if you can't find it. 1041 chapter 21 is about the new heavens and the new earth. All of this made new fixed, restored, no more death, mourning, crying, no more pain, all the brokenness made whole and complete. Right, do you ever look and long for that? Right, surely. I, our thought is, hey man, 2020 has been bad. I hope 2021 is better. Hey, man, that's not a bad thing to hope. I hope that too. But our thought should impart me, be, hey man, 2020 is bad. I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait for eternity fixed perfected purified because 2021 won't have anything to do with any uh, of that right surely 2020 has made us has made that more attractive and desirous to us do we ever think about Eternity. Do we ever live in light of what is to come? Can you imagine this glorious creation of God perfected? The perfection and beauty of snow not messed up with all the dirt and the paving or something. I don't know what it's going to be like. I have no idea. But it's going to be all the good things of this elevated, all the bad things from this eradicated. New heavens and the new earth. But what's really so good about it? Chapter 21, verse 3. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, there's the noun, same word, tent, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell, there's the verb, same word, uh, pitch his tent with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then later down in verse 22, we see that there will be no temple there. Why is that? tells us for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb temple and tabernacle that's the language that john is using back in chapter 1 verse 14 the dwell the word dwell could literally be translated tabernacled as some translated the word the, the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us, because both the tabernacle and the temple were the dwelling place of God with His people. They were the place that God was present with His people. And church, this is the point of everything. This was the beginning. God, the King, created His people and put them in His place. Right there is the kingdom, King, uh, people, place. That's Eden. That's paradise. Why was it paradise? Because that's where God was. God was intimately present with his people, walking in the garden. Again, I think, that's, I think that's the sun. There's unmediated access, fellowship, relationship, and that's what God created us for. We ruined it with our sin. Sin separates us from the holy God. We were cast out of the garden, the special place of the presence of God, but immediately God leapt into action to begin to restore his presence with his people. And that's what the tabernacle and the temple were about. They represented God with us. God present with his people. And what's the most frequent thing that happens in the tabernacle and the temple? Sacrifice. Death. Because as we've seen, the wages of sin is death. But in the tabernacle and the temple and in the whole sacrificial system, what God is doing is graciously providing a substitute. He's graciously providing a, a covering. Animals to die in the place of sinners. Lambs pointing forward to the Lamb, Jesus Christ to come. And God does all of this so that he could be with his people. And so, in one of the classic Christmas texts, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, I didn't write the page number, you can find that one. Matthew chapter 1, 21 and 23, we read this. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Why? Why would he do that? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. That's Jesus. That's why incarnation that's why he took away sins so that God could once again be with us his people Jesus is God with us his people the word became flesh and dwelt among us God became man to be with man because this is life itself church we've got to get it in our minds that this is the very thing that we were made for Relationship, fellowship, uh, communion with him. And and this thing, this is the thing that is life. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. And all, this thing is only possible because the son became man to die so that we might live. Or... Uh, As the great Athanasius provocatively put it over 1,600 years ago, he's got another work on the incarnation. He's explaining in light of Arius. This guy's denying the uh, the deity of Jesus. Athanasius is one of the great defenders of the person of Christ. Listen to what he says. Uh, Be careful with this, but it's good. He writes, God became man so that man might become God. God became man so that man might become God. Now, people have taken this and done all kinds of not good things with it. People have gotten a little crazy. That's not Athanasius' fault. And if you read his work, that was not Athanasius' intent. He didn't mean ever that the creature might become the creator. He didn't ever mean that we might literally become God, this theosis kind of idea that we're kind of caught up into uh, the very uh, being, the essence of the divinity of of God. That's not what he meant. But what he did know and mean is that he, he understood the great dignity that God gave to man when he created us, in his image and likeness. God made us like him. Like God, fit for relationship with God. We greatly marred that image with our sin. We almost stamped it out. And that's what God is fixing. That's what he's restoring. Romans 8:29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What did we just learn about this son? He's the son who is God. So in saving us and sanctifying us, God is making us like him, like his son. He is making us holy, the image of God in man, restored, once again, not God, but once again, like God. We remain the, the creature, of course, but we are, are perfected and made pure and made holy based upon the work of Christ in our place. Why is he doing all this? Right, to make us what he originally intended us to be so that we could be with him. Because that's what we were made for. This is where we find life. He is where we find life. We were created for relationship with the creator God of the universe. Um, Our our creator, we, we sinned against him, we rejected him. But what this verse is telling us is that he came after us. In sending us his son, God says, in effect, I'll go myself. And as Leon Morris puts it, there is all the difference and a God who saves sinners and a God who asks somebody else to do it. No, here is the God himself who himself saves sinners by becoming by coming himself for sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is fully God and fully man so that man can be restored to relationship with God so that God can be with us. And what I want to encourage you. You know, some of you have vacation coming up. I'm, we're going on vacation. I'm excited about some vacation. But there's always this temptation to say, hey, everything will be good when I get a break and when I get vacation. Or everything will be good when you get to retire. Or everything will be good when you get to this thing or this job or this relationship or, or whatever it is. We look at these things and say, these are the things. I'll be happy once I have these things. And I'll be fulfilled and I'll be satisfied and that'll be good. What we're seeing here and what John wants to remind us and what I need to so desperately learn is that life is not found in those things. It's not found in my pleasure or my ease or my comfort. It's not found in vacation. It's not found in me being affirmed as a great preacher or succeeding in my vocation. It's it's found in him. And it's found in relationship with him and nowhere else. These other things are all good. Vacation is good. I'm going to enjoy vacation. I'm excited about it. But those things are all worthless. Eternally and worthless apart from him. Right? Because this is what we were made for. And God is telling us this is where we find the fulfillment and the satisfaction. He has done all of these things so that he can be with us. And there's nothing better than God with us. There's nothing better than the presence of God, who is life and light and love and joy and peace and everything. And so John writes, and tragically, just don't have much time for the glory. John writes... He says, listen, he says, we have seen his glory. This is why John is writing. He says, I, I've witnessed it. I've seen it. Let me, let me tell you about it. So you too can see it and know him and believe. And what did John see? Many people will argue, when he says he's seen his glory, many people will argue, well, listen, John must be talking about the transfiguration there. Remember the transfiguration, they go up on the mount. It's just Jesus, Peter, James, and John, this John, and in the Synoptic Gospels, we get some, Jesus gives them some sort of glimpse, some sort of revelation of his true glory. So that must be what he's talking about. But guess what? For some reason, John never mentions the transfiguration in his gospel. It's only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't mention it. So he must be talking about something else, I think, in the context of his book. I think he must not want to stress the glory of the flesh, the glory of the man Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. John says he sees, he sees the glory. John sees the word made flesh. See, in a a beautiful way, flesh is not just the means. We we sing veiled in flesh the Godhead see. That's wonderful. That's that's true. That's good. But in a sense, flesh is not the means by which God's glory is concealed. In a wonderful way, the flesh is one of the very means by which God's glory is concealed revealed the flesh is the very medium of his glory verse 18 no one has ever seen god that's our problem but jesus christ the word the son of god he has made him known and what is god like he's like jesus do you know god the father as he is revealed in god the son God the Son who took on flesh to dwell among us. God the Son who is God with us. God the Son who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the point of Christmas. And He is the point of history. He is the point of reality. Uh, he is uh, the point of, of life itself. I was listening to something yesterday. I was talking about how, you know, in secular literature they've changed the dates from BC to AD because, you know, we don't want it to revolve around, you know, Jesus, you know, Hanno Domine before Christ. We don't want to do that. So they did BCE and, you know, CE. But guess what? They didn't change the dates, right? They didn't change the center point around which history revolves, which is Christ, because he's the center of everything. And this is the most important thing that has ever happened. God has come. God has become man to save man. God has become man to save man so that man could be with God and God could be with man. Remember, that's what we looked at again and again and again as the point of Genesis. What's the covenant? The whole Bible was structured by covenants. Covenant is everything. Covenant is communion. Covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. God is fulfilling that right here in verse 14 as Christ comes as Emmanuel to be God with us. So church, John writes so that you can see him and so that you can know him and so that you can believe in him and have life in his name. And this belief is not just a one-time event. Uh, His desire is that for all of us to believe and live every day and every moment of our lives as if this most important thing that has ever happened was true. Again, not just true, but, but true for you. And in believing, John wants you to find life in his name the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory no one has ever seen god but jesus the word has made him known do you know this god as revealed in this glorious son if you would bow with me let's let's close in a word of prayer gracious heavenly father we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through uh, the word incarnated, uh, Jesus Christ, and the word inscripturated, uh, the word uh, written down that we have now read and and heard. Um, Father, as we um, saw briefly in Sunday school this morning, I pray that we would be um, not just hearers of these words, but that we would be doers of them. Make us the wise men and women who build our entire lives on the foundation of the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. Father, grab our attention with him. Capture our affection uh, with him. We are still so frequently caught up and compelled by the world and the things of the world and the things that the world tells us uh, that we are to live for and that will give us uh, life and fulfillment and joy. Father, show us that those things are only found ultimately in you. I pray that we would all of us uh, believe in him and have life in his name. I pray that we would believe that eternal life is found in knowing you. Father, help us to live our lives entirely in light of this most important thing that has ever happened. That Jesus, the Son of God, has become flesh and that he has lived and that he has died and that he has rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, that is life. And as we saw last week, as we enter into time with family or holiday or friends or whatever it is that's coming up, as we saw Spurgeon encourage last week, Father, that we would keep Christmas in part through witness Father, that we have now um, been witnessed to by John, the witness, and John, the apostle. We have seen uh, this glory uh, through the word. Father, use us to be your ambassadors and to speak uh, this glorious good news of the life that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Father, we desperately need your help uh, to do these things. Father, we desperately need your help to love you as we should. Uh, So we ask for you to help us now. Work by your spirit through your word. And we ask and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.